use up all my time. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'm turning over Fridays on The Overlook to what I'm calling audio residencies. Anyone in or around Asheville can apply to become an audio resident of The Overlook. I'll have details at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have as our first resident Story Parlor, a West Asheville venue that just opened up last year and has quickly become a captivating hub for storytelling in a variety of stripes. Aaron halligan Clare is the visionary behind Story Parlor, and I'm turning this space and the microphone over to her. Today's episode shines a spotlight on some of the incredible Black artists here in Asheville in honor of Black History Month, featuring music, storytelling, and poetry from Story Parlor events gone by. I'm Erin halligan Clare, founder and artistic director of Story Parlor. First, we'll hear some live music from Kelly Morris, known as the Duke of Who Knows Where. He is a singer, songwriter, and producer, and has toured the country and opened up for household names such as B.B. King, Band of Horses, The Wood Brothers, Houndmouth, and more. I first met Kelly when he was busking on Wall Street in downtown Asheville during the pandemic, and he was the first artist to grace our stage at our opening weekend in April of 2022. Then stick around for a short poem by Mildred Barga. Oh, thank you guys so much. Start somewhere on it. But I, I haven't played it for anybody yet, so it's a, it's a new thing. If 
It's too much to exist Till your heart I resist It's a miracle that we are Together after all of this Heaven lost his glory You sang under the canopy Against counsel and clergy
Today's episode is created in honor of Black History and Black Futures Month. We just heard two original songs from Kelly Morris, known as the Duke of Who Knows Where. Up next, a poem from our Enneagram-themed story mixer in the summer of 2022, shared by local writer, author, and poet, Mildred Barga. When I arrive home from a long walk, I open the door and tell my presence, enter. I fetch a cabernet from the cabinet and a tall, graceful glass. I step out of the kitchen and move into the living room, sit with myself, pour my soul into the glass, taste and drink it. A honeyed fragrance like fresh mulch rises to meet me, earthy notes, blackberry finish. I run fingers across my hands and arms. Years of sheer butter have softened the skin. Even the elbows speak tenderness. I sip the years that are yet to come and lovingly gaze into the person I have become. Welcome home, I announce to myself, nodding, like the wine, full-bodied, mature. Loneliness leaves no sourness on my palate, but delectable calm. Time swells and collapses on itself while I am here, keeping my own company, feeling enough. We just heard from Mildred Baria, a writer from Uganda now living here in Asheville with multiple poetry publications, including her forthcoming collection, The Animals of My Earth School. She coordinates the poetry of readings at Malaprop's Independent Bookstore and Cafe and teaches creative writing and literature at UNC Asheville. You are listening to audio captured from Story Parlor events gone by. I'm Erin Halligan-Claire, and we'll be back after a short break with a story from Jasmine pittman Morell. Hannah Cole is an Asheville artist and accountant and the founder of Sunlight Tax. She has all kinds of free resources on her website, including a podcast called Sunlight. Hannah serves up practical advice in short episodes about taxes and shaping how people in creative fields think about business. It is about tax and money issues for, I like to say, visionary creators. So people who are doing care work, healing work, and creative work. People who are driven by a passion and not just for money. To me, people doing that creative work are changing the world for the better. We're the empathy muscle of our culture. Sunlight ranks in the upper tier of entrepreneurship podcasts on the iTunes chart. Go to your favorite podcast outlet and find Sunlight with Hannah Cole and go to sunlighttax.com for all the other resources Hannah offers, including details on her money boot camp. Up next, we'll hear a story from Jasmine pittman Morell, an Asheville writer and editor who deeply believes in radical hospitality and the power of the imagination. Jasmine took to the Story Parlor stage for our festival night-themed AVL review event in November of 2022, sharing from her chapter in the book Bigger Than Bravery, an anthology of Black resilience and reclamation. So I had this cough, 
And it bent me over my bathroom sink, um, and speckles of blood were flecking the porcelain. The pain cinched this band around my lungs, and it kept me hunched over myself, unable to draw a full breath. The feeling was worse than childbirth. At least when I gave birth, I knew what to expect. I could always manage to breathe my way through the kind of pain that comes with knowing. On that day in February, CNN reported that 1,770,000, or no, 17, I can't read the numbers, 1,770 people around the world had died from something called a novel coronavirus. I'd never heard of Anthony Fauci before. Why would I have reason to know who the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases was? He told a news anchor from Face the Nation that we tumbled toward a global pandemic, and I wondered if this virus could be successfully contained. That day was Sunday, and my husband begged to take me to urgent care. Let's wait a little longer, I said. It's probably nothing. I didn't know how to explain my hesitancy to him. The fear of my pain being dismissed because of the brandy hues of my skin. He is a white man. He hadn't heard. Even the goddess of tennis, Serena Williams, almost died from blood clots after giving birth in the hospital. Williams explained in an article written for CNN that her medical team did not immediately listen to her concerns, doubting the knowledge of her own body. I'd been sick for weeks with this simmering fever. It was my body's way of trying to alert me. If I didn't listen to it, who would? I relented and decided to let him take me to the clinic. The fear released itself like a curled leaf falling from a tree and landing in the French Broad River. At the clinic, signs tacked to the wall asked patients if we'd recently been out of the country, warning of this new virus. We all seemed to lean away from each other, not wanting to brush skin against skin, even if we didn't yet know to wear a mask. When the doctor called me back to the examination room, my husband Mike came with me, his whiteness like a talisman. The doctor's eyes mirrored his concern. She guided a stethoscope across my chest and down my back and told me to take deep breaths, but they wouldn't come. It's unlikely, she said, but I'm sending you to the emergency room to be tested for pulmonary embolism. You could have blood clots in your lungs, she explained. If they travel to your heart or your brain, it could be fatal. Oh, you could have left your daughters childless or motherless, I chastised myself. At least before I left, I remember to say I love you. I found myself talking to trees once I'd come back from the hospital, particularly the river birches and the weeping willow in my yard. Certain I'd fallen in love and perhaps even lost my mind a little bit, I allowed this secret guilt to nest in their limbs. I'd escaped death, even as this growing virus began to claim so many other lives, more than 12,000 people at this point. I asked the trees for protection, thinking, we're not out of the woods yet. And then look at you, joking with trees. I felt guilt, too, for this sudden eruption of laughter that escaped from my lips, um, almost, almost as if I'd been caught giggling at a funeral. We were confined to this iridescent, intangible bubble. Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, had declared it, and I couldn't imagine living 
without these people who were of my blood and my heart alongside me. My family, they were my way of knowing. I saw a friend's Instagram post, an eerie shot of empty, sun-kissed San Francisco streets, her caption detailing what it was like to shelter in place. But she noted how lonely she might have felt without being able to sit down to dinner with her roommates, who routinely found flowers for their shared table. I liked the phrase, shelter in place, even, in Sa even if in San Francisco it was issued as an order. I gave myself permission, permission to shelter from my place, to take refuge in my home and in my body. I signed up for a CSA to avoid going to the grocery store, but also to support those local farms. The season sang its abundance in notes of rhubarb, bok choy, asparagus, and strawberries. And later, the crescendo of sugar plums called for this crafting of a pie that my family devoured in moments. Our neighbor left a bag of cherry tomatoes fresh from the market on my doorstep, and even after making salsa, I had more than I needed. I found yoga on YouTube and appreciated the way this teacher's guidance dripped honey down my spine. I even signed up for this virtual boot camp, and it was this cute black trainer with these dimples and a smile, and his enthusiasm was just contagious. And I thought, why not enjoy looking and working out with this beautiful man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My husband Mike just laughed at me. I scheduled Zoom calls with old college friends, friends I didn't talk to often, even before the pandemic, but now the need for connection felt so urgent and vital. They reminded me of nights spent, all of us tipsy from cheap wine, sprawled in the grass on the lawn of our school's observatory, holding hands and staring up at the stars. Together, we practiced remembering more carefree days when our lives stood open and right before us, begging us to taste their sweetness. I knew my health depended on these things. I knew it like I'd never really known it before. I bet y'all have stories like that, too. I lived in a historically black neighborhood in southern Appalachia, a region America does not really imagine containing historically black neighborhoods. Only about a mile away from our house, one of the country's first African-American cultural halls still stood on Eagle Street, the building a totem for me and my neighbors. After police officers murdered Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and sparked nationwide protests, I wanted to join the ranks of those marching in our city streets. But fear of the virus overrode my sense of powerlessness and rage. So instead of joining the others, I took my daughters on a stroll throughout the neighborhood, pushing my youngest in a red jogging stroller and noticing all the Black Lives Matter signs in the yards. And then, there on the sidewalk was this perfectly spray-painted portrait of Brianna Taylor. I stopped and tears blinded my eyes. And I said her name out loud, Brianna, hoping that no one would ever have cause to say my daughter's names like that. I stepped off the sidewalk, refusing to push the stroller across her face. I ran the rest of the way home in the street, pushing all 60 or 70-ish pounds of my daughter and the stroller as the sweet burn of air filled my lungs and down the column, through down the column of my throat. The cancer in my mother's bones brought her to us, 
to the mountains, far from the palm trees and sandhill cranes she adored. In the middle of a pandemic, it seemed impossible for diseases like cancer to still exist. But just as summer brought its abundance, the crone of death appeared in all her usual guises. For her, we prepared to move across town into a bigger house, aided by a community of mass friends called the Mercy Movers, a volunteer group from our church where they were willing to carry box after box in heat and play Tetris, Tetris with our belongings in the U-Haul. We tried to give each other a wide berth as we passed in tight spaces like the hallway or the stairwell. I stationed bottles of hand sanitizer everywhere, a small mercy I could offer in return. I mourned leaving Southside in its blackness, and this ode was like a living presence. But I could not let my mother take death's hand without standing beside her and offering my hand to hold as well. In January of 2021, I met a shaman at a retreat center tucked away north across town, attempting to banish some of the year's grief that was now written into my cells. He was a friend, and he had reached out to me over the holidays to offer support, wondering if a retreat laced with ceremony could serve as a balm. The shaman carefully curated this group of five. We'd all tested negative for the virus. It was the first time I'd gathered with strangers in person in over a year. I was there for silence and stillness and meditation and for rituals known to ease ailments of body and spirit and for my mother, who now only visited me in my dreams. We began inside the house, sitting on the floor in a room with plush carpet and pale morning light haunting the windows. During the opening circle, the shaman invited us to share any intentions we held for the retreat. I want to heal unprocessed grief, I heard myself say when my turn came, but I knew it was too soon for that. It had only been three months since she'd passed. The U.S. alone had surpassed 20 million cases of this virus, and at that point, no one I knew was eligible to receive the vaccine. Then there were things that I couldn't speak, things only my body could articulate and perhaps needed to be blown away, the way a child blows a delicate cloud of dandelion seeds. After everyone around the circle spoke, the shaman invited us to go outside and explore the 11 surrounding acres of wooded hills studded with small stone altars. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and paused, unrecognizing. With red-rimmed eyes and sallow skin, there was something about the visibility of my grief that pleased me. Wandering into a grove, tree on the property, grove of trees on the property, I found a statue of the Buddha sitting cross-legged on the ground. I'd never met Buddha before, but I sat and looked into his face. His open-handed presence soothes my mind. Empty yourself, he seemed to say. He was this center of gravity, and after what felt like hours, I stood up lighter than before. An eastern hemlock at the top of a hill looked like a welcoming place to spread my blanket underneath its branches. I laid on my back and watched its needles sway in the wind. The ground cradled me. Eventually, the other two women on the retreat climbed the hill and sat gently, nymph-like, beside me. They wrapped their arms around me. They stroked my hair, we know, they murmured. They'd lost parents, too. Across the field, oaks, sweet gums, yellow poplars, and maples raised barren arms in, in reverence. 
When night settled, our group gathered around a fire. No longer strangers, I learned none of the others who sat beside me were native to the South. They marveled at the way the rhythms of this place can feel languid and the hospitality so lush. I'm lucky, no, I'm blessed to have spent my life with this knowing. Silently, I thank the Eastern Band of Cherokee for knowing more of this land than any of us ever would. The fire's flames warmed and loosened the tight cords of muscles knotted in my shoulders. I wondered if this is what poet warrior Audre Lorde had in mind when she wrote about self-preservation. I tilted my head back to the stars and watched them dancing. Laughter echoed around me, but I was too full to laugh. I let bliss sink down deep into all the parts and pieces that needed its light. Having grown up in the church, the familiar words of Holy Communion reminded me, this is my body, broken for you. But I am not broken open in sacrifice. My ancestors did not bring me here for that. Now is the time to brim and brim with wholeness. Thanks. Thank you to the Duke of Who Knows Where, Mildred Baria, and Jasmine Pittman Morell, and thanks, of course, to all of you out there for listening. Audio was captured at past story mixers and AVL review events. Held monthly, these themed evenings welcome a handful of artists and art organizations to the stage to each share a piece that reflects, in some way, their own humanity through multidisciplinary storytelling. I'm Erin Halligan Clare, founder and artistic director at Story Parlor. Story Parlor is a multidisciplinary art space in West Asheville dedicated to storytelling, creativity, and the exploration of the human experience with a robust calendar of events and classes for the community and by the community. Join us next week for a look inside an upcoming multidisciplinary production coming to West Asheville entitled The Big Beautiful Cranky Project. Until then, you can find out more at www.storyparlor.avl.com. Throughout Story Parlor's audio residency with The Overlook, Erin Halligan Clare brings you select performances from the Story Parlor stage every Friday. Audio residencies with The Overlook are open to anyone living in or around Asheville. If you have an idea for journalistically reported work, storytelling, or an alternatively narrative show you want to present, email a short summary of your idea, along with your name and how to get in touch with you, to matt at podavl.com. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts, follow The Overlook, and talk back to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Sign up for our weekly newsletter, and please, please, please share our show out to everyone in your circle who cares about Asheville. Our theme song, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. Find out more about them at theresonantrogues.com. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.